Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 33, the book of Matthew, chapter 9, the second continuation. As we continue with Matthew chapter 9, we left off last time with verse 27, and it says this, As Yeshua went on from there, two blind men began following him, shouting, Son of David, take pity on us. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9, and we're going to read verses uh, 27 until the end of the chapter. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 1234. That's not too hard. 1234. And we'll start at verse 27. As Yeshua went on from there, two blind men began following Him, shouting, Son of David, take pity on us. And when He entered the house, the blind men came up. And Yeshua said to them, Do you believe that I have the power to do this? And they replied, Yes, sir. Then He touched their eyes and said, Let it happen to you according to your trust. And their sight was restored. Yeshua warned them severely, See that no one knows about it. But instead they went away and talked about Him throughout the district. And as they were going, a man, controlled by a demon, unable to speak, was brought to Yeshua. And after the demon was expelled, the man who had been made mute spoke, and the crowds were amazed. And nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel, they said. But the Parshim, the Pharisees, said, It's through the ruler of the demons that he expels demons. Yeshua went about all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, healing every kind of disease and weakness. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harried and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his Talmudim, his disciples, A harvest is rich, but the workers are few. Pray that the Lord of the harvest will send out workers to gather in His harvest. You know, while it can fly right by us, it hasn't been missed by most Bible scholars who flinch a little bit when they read the words, Son of David. See, for them, this term, Son of David, seems so out of place. And it's especially bothersome as to why these two blind men would call Yeshua by that title. See, Son of David is a a title, it's a name, it's actually quite technical. And in none of the Synoptic Gospels has it been used of Christ up to this point in His ministry except by Matthew. So what did the term, Son of David, mean to the Jewish people and to Matthew? Well, without doubt, to Matthew it was tied directly to the Mashiach, to the Messiah. Matthew opens his genealogy of Yeshua in his Gospel with, This is the genealogy of Yeshua the Messiah, Son of David, Son of Abraham. So the opening words of Matthew's Gospels are meant to place Yeshua directly at the center of Messianic hope. It was intended to identify Him as a direct descendant of Abraham, the father of all Hebrews, and also of King David, who was believed to be the royal father of the eternal Messianic line. Now, because Matthew, the believing Jew, is writing decades in hindsight, some years after the events he was writing about took place, then of course he had already come to the personal conclusion that Jesus is the Messiah, so that's written into his Gospel. It had become a common understanding among the Jewish people that the prophesied 
deliverer would be a descendant, a son of David, because David had been promised that a member of his household would rule on the throne of Israel forever. 2 Samuel records a prophecy of Nathan, Nathan, the prophet God provided for King David as he speaks this to David during the time that he was king of Israel. In 2 Samuel 7, 11-16 we read, Moreover, Adonai tells you that Adonai will make you a house. When your days come to an end and you sleep with your ancestors, I will establish one of your descendants to succeed you, succeed you, one of your own flesh and blood, and I will set up his rulership. He will build a house for my name. I will establish his royal throne forever. I will be a father for him. He will be a son for me. If he does something wrong, I will punish him with a rod and blows, just as everyone gets punished. Nevertheless, my grace will not leave him, as I took it away from Shaul, whom I removed from before you. Thus your house, your kingdom, will be made secure forever before you. Your throne will be set up forever." So the idea that the Messiah would be a son of David, a descendant of David, was first established right here. Many centuries later that David-Messiah connection was well understood within Jewish theology. But there's more to this in this brief story of the two blind men. Now hang in there with me, please. This is going to help you see this episode in color and not just black and white. In Hebrew, the original language not only of the Old Testament but also of the original Gospel of Matthew, son of David is Ben David. Now interestingly, however, in the Old Testament, follow me here, when the term Ben David is used, it always refers to King Solomon. Always. David's biological son, David's immediate successor, Solomon. Now knowing this, and knowing that the only scripture in existence in Yeshua's era was the Tanakh, the Old Testament. And then what exactly, what exactly is it that these two blind men had in their minds about who or what the son of David is and how does this apply to Yeshua such that they shouted it out to him in hopes that he would heal, him, heal them? Is it that they are saying that unlike anyone else so far, they believe Jesus is the prophesied Jewish Messiah? Or could it be that they think of this miracle-working Sadiq, this holy man, that is accomplishing these astounding feats so far beyond any of the previously known Tzadikim, holy men, plural, thinking of him not as the Messiah, but rather as a sort of second Solomon. Now I'm going to explain that in a moment. After all, there is simply no sense thus far in Matthew or in any of the Gospels that this early in his ministry had Yeshua of Nazareth become known as the Messiah among the Jewish people, not even among his own disciples. And I remind you that many potential messiahs had already come and gone, and even more would come after Christ's death on the cross, including men such as Shimon bar Kokhba, who led the Jewish people in a rebellion against Rome in the 130s AD. But this idea of the story of the two blind men and a possible connection with Solomon, man, that really intrigued me. I mean, after all, while Yeshua drew people to him through his stupendous miracles, 
he also had gained a reputation as a fount of wisdom that stood above even that of the Jewish religious authorities, temple or synagogue. And who in Israelite history was known most for his wisdom? Solomon. I want you to have this idea sink in for a moment. I suggested in earlier lessons that while Yeshua's miracles were amazing to behold, those miracles were not what led the people, Jews or Gentiles, to believe that He was the Messiah. And I also suggested that especially among those who came in later generations, including ours by the way, that while those mind-bending miracles make for great reading and for faith-building, it was not that, it is His wisdom that drew us towards Him in the first place. It is the depth and the truth of what He taught, the compassion, the soul-healing that He stood for that has brought countless millions of humanity to Him for salvation. The Apostle Paul was particularly sensitive to this characteristic of wisdom being associated with Christ. Here is but one of numerous statements that Paul made speaking of Yeshua in terms of wisdom. Listen to this from 1 Corinthians 1, 21-24. For God's wisdom ordained that the world, using its own wisdom, would not come to know Him. Therefore God decided to use the nonsense of what we proclaim as His means of saving those who come to trust in it, precisely because Jews ask for signs and because Greeks try to find wisdom, we go on proclaiming a Messiah executed on a stake as a criminal. See, to Jews this is an obstacle, to Greeks this is nonsense. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, this same Messiah is God's power and God's wisdom. Here Paul explains Yeshua's very substance as that of God's wisdom. No matter which Bible version one might choose to study, the connection between Christ and wisdom, even wisdom being organically embodied in Christ, as it was said to be in Solomon, is front and center. It's just unmistakable. It helps when we learn that in ancient times in nearly every society, wisdom was seen as a living thing. In some religions it was an entirely separate god or goddess. Wisdom was a tangible entity that was perceived as having actual power of itself. So I researched the possibility that perhaps Jews of Christ's day thought of the term Son of David, not how we've typically pictured it, but rather it was a term used in two different and separate ways. The first was meant as an association with the Messiah, but the second was meant as an association with David's son that he had with Bathsheba, Solomon. Now, my search led to a Bible scholar, Lauren Fisher, who in 1968 pointed out that some ancient incantation bowls with inscriptions, inscriptions written in Aramaic on them had been discovered in the Holy Land, and these writings on the bowls spoke of King Solomon as a great exorcist. That is, he could order demons out of people. In 1974, Evald Lovestam pointed out that in the ancient extra-biblical work called The Testimony of Solomon, written perhaps as early as the first century, 
King Solomon was characterized as having been a miracle healer, even a magician of sorts. Now, I'm not saying that in actuality King Solomon was any of these things, but they are solid evidence that in ancient times, and by all accounts in Jesus' time as well, that the acts of miracle healing and exorcism had among the Jewish people become something associated more with the qualities of Solomon than with a Messiah. When we add the miracle healings attributed to Solomon, to the commonly understood chief characteristic of Solomon as the master of wisdom on earth, Jesus certainly would have reflected those same attributes to the minds of the Jews who witnessed it. Therefore, this might be the reason why these blind men shouted out, Son of David, at him. It was not that they were thinking in terms of a Messiah who was a descendant of David as much as they were thinking of this amazing man having the characteristics of King Solomon, the actual Old Testament son of David. This scenario fits the story in Matthew far better than assigning to these blind to these uh, two blind men an inexplicable belief that somehow they were thinking that Jesus was the Messiah even before he had revealed himself. Now, for those who might misunderstand what I'm saying, <laughs> in no way do I mean that Yeshua is not the Messiah and instead is the personification of wisdom. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that just as He is both the Lamb and the Lion, He is also both Savior and Wisdom. Paul recognized that. He bears the characteristics of both David and Solomon. Remember, he was descended through David's son, Solomon. But to this point in his earthly ministry, the timeline is portrayed in the Gospel accounts, it had not yet occurred to the Jews that he might be the Messiah who bore David's characteristics. Rather, he was at this point in time more naturally seen as wisdom and as the healer and the exorcist, someone who bore Solomon's characteristics, even though most of these characteristics were just steeped in folk folklore and tradition. Why did I spend so much time exploring this with you? Because this provides much needed additional background for what we're reading. It explains how various Jewish people thought of Jesus of Nazareth quite differently as they struggled to comprehend where exactly He fit and to their understanding about these miraculously mysterious few men in Jewish history who had this power to perform miracles and healings and exorcisms. Where did He fit? If we can just wrap our minds around this concept, then we're going to gain a more true understanding of the historical and the actual Yeshua about the people He interacted with and what these Gospel accounts reveal about the real people living at that time. If we can apprehend what the words and the terms and the actions that we find in the New Testament indicated to members of first century Jewish society, not what they seem to mean as seen through the lens of modern Western and Eastern societies of Christians, 2,000 years later, then we're going to gain a much more solid foundation for our own personal faith. Well, let's move on. So, these two blind men who think of Jesus as possessing the characteristics of the Son of David in their minds, probably meaning Solomon-like abilities, they beseech Him to take notice of them. 
The next verse says that when he entered the house, these two blind men came to him and they pled with him. Whose house is the house? It indicates Yeshua's own personal home in Capernaum, or Peter's. Or it is that many suspect Yeshua was residing with Peter. And for a time it could be said it was their mutual home. Now notice Yeshua's response to their plea. Paraphrased, he asked them if they thought he had the power to do what they were asking. What did Christ mean by saying this? I mean, clearly, these two men wouldn't have run after Christ and begged him to heal them if they didn't already think he could do it. The issue is not just faith, it's depth of faith. Do they have enough faith to sincerely believe that Yeshua has the power to heal? Now, even though in Jewish culture blindness was thought to have been the result of sin, Yeshua doesn't do with these two men what he did with the paralytic, that is, he doesn't forgive their sins that then results in physical healing. Rather, he establishes their faith that he unequivocally does have the extraordinary power to heal their blindness and then says that as a result of this faith or trust, they're healed. And behold, instantly they could see. And yet, if their faith was not in Yeshua as the Messiah, then in what was their faith? All Christ asked was if they have the faith to truly, sincerely believe that He had the power to what? Heal them. Not save them. Heal them. Not if they thought He was the Savior. Obviously, they did possess that level of faith. Notice that once again, as with that dead girl whom Yeshua revivified, this miracle was done in private inside the house. The church father Chrysostom, in his homily on the Gospel of Matthew, says this about this passage. For what purpose did it happen that while they are crying out, he delays and he questions them further? Here again Jesus is teaching us to utterly resist the glory that comes from the crowds. There was a house nearby. He led them into the house to heal them in private. Then he charged them to tell no one. Now look, I don't mean to be disrespectful, but doesn't it make you a little bit uneasy or even skeptical at some of these large Christian healing gatherings, especially the televised ones, when in front of a rapt crowd, a pastor will line people up as though they're anxiously waiting in line to board an amusement ride? and dramatically lay a hand on them and miraculously heal them to the shouts and the adoration of everyone present. And of course, the expectation of money for the healer is involved in some way. Now, isn't this the opposite of Christ's example? The absolute opposite of it. Isn't it something he mostly tried to avoid? Apparently, such a temptation to do such a thing is to exploit victims, and the crowds came about long before Yeshua's day. It existed all during it, and it lives on, of course, into modern times. When Christ speaks about praying or healing to gain personal adulation and reward, it's never in positive terms. Therefore, as typical, in verse 30, Yeshua was said to have admonished the healed blind men severely <laughs> not to tell anyone. Other versions say sternly warned. These are all good interpretations of the Greek. The point is, Yeshua didn't tell them as an aside or, 
nicely. Let's be a little quiet about this. He was emphatic. He ordered it. The intention was unmistakable. So how did these two men, who could now see again, react? Well, they promptly went out from the house, journeyed across the whole region, no doubt meaning the Galilee, and talked about what happened to them to everybody they encountered. Now, as believers, we could probably chalk this up to unbridled joy and enthusiasm. Or as so many in the church teach, oh, well, they were now out evangelizing. Hardly. They were being disobedient. They were being disobedient, even if they meant no harm from it. Or if they were so happy, they just couldn't contain themselves. They immediately went out and did what they were specifically and forcefully commanded not to do. Forget the why of it. Doesn't matter. You know, we can read of Christians doing things or not doing things they should have done that Yeshua explicitly taught about all through the ages and being proud of themselves in the doing. Big things, like the church pushing Jews out, or the Inquisition, or the Crusades, or the Holocaust, or like declaring the Law of Moses is null and void. Nearly every one of these and scores of other examples were done in the name of enthusiasm, but also in Christ's name. I don't think for a second that these two blind men in any way thought of Yeshua as the Messiah. Rather, to them he was an extraordinary holy man who even bore characteristics of Solomon. Therefore, obedience to him played no role. Otherwise, we have two men who convert and instantly disobey Yeshua. When later we read of those who truly know him, as Messiah, they'll fastidiously obey Him unto death, if necessary. Christians, <laughs> Christians of all eras seem to have the most annoying proclivity to at once profess unshakable faith and at the same time demonstrate remarkable unfaithfulness. When we come to teaching moments like these in our Bible study, I just can't help but to be reminded of the most terrifying passage in all the Bible. Matthew 7, 21-22 Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, only those who do what my Father in heaven wants. On that day, many are going to say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we expel demons in your name? Didn't we perform miracles in your name? Does this not rather fit well with those two former blind men who couldn't wait to disobey him? Even if it was because they were so happy at what he did for them. Our emotions do not trump. Jesus' commands. Verse 32 says, as they were going. Apparently Christ and some of His disciples now had left Capernaum. Wherever He was going, large crowds were again present. And Christ's ministry had progressed such that His feats couldn't help but attract hundreds, maybe thousands. Now, clearly, not only the curious came, but also those who had hopes of healing for themselves or for others. Yeshua now meets another demon-possessed man who had been unable to speak because of it. In the most abrupt, concise way, Matthew simply says the demon was expelled, and that allowed the man to talk in the story. See, each, each miracle adds to Jesus' reputation. The crowds can't get enough of it. We're told that the viewpoint of the people is there is no precedent among the people of Israel for what Christ is doing. That is, now this doesn't mean in all recorded history of the Israelite people that no one has done such things. Rather, in recent memory, such things have not happened. 
Now the Pharisees, as we're talking about the, re, the, the, the leadership of, a, of that religious party, now they got a different opinion. In fact, when we read this passage, we see that first Matthew has the crowd responding to the exercising of the demon-possessed man by being very impressed. The crowd was very impressed by this. Then, immediately, we have the Pharisee leadership, the synagogue leadership, responding to the crowds. The Pharisees are not talking to Yeshua, but to the people who witnessed the dumb man now speaking. And they're trying to discourage them from thinking that what Christ is doing is a good thing. Rather, they claim that Christ expelled a demon, it was only because of his cooperation with the ruler of the demons, Satan. This seems on its face to be an absurdity. However, when the legitimate and the respected leadership of a group or a government claims something, no matter how preposterous, the common folk will often just assume that their leaders must be right for no other reason than they're the leaders. We don't read of a response from Jesus to this obvious slander, probably because he never heard it. One can only wonder if Matthew just let this stand without rebuttal, because on its face, the Pharisee leader's accusation is ridiculous. Even so, Matthew will use this rash claim as a foil in, in, in later parts of his gospel. Now, many Bible scholars are convinced that a passage in Mark, the Gospel of Mark, is telling the same story and so adds some information to us. In Mark 3, 22-26, we read, The Torah teachers came down from Jerusalem and said, He has Beelzebul, all right, Beelzebub, in him, and it is by the ruler of the demons that he expels the demons. But he called them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan expel, expel Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom can't survive. And if a household is divided against itself, that household can't survive. So if Satan has rebelled against himself and is divided, he can't survive either, and that's the end of him. Well, now first, I can't agree that this is the same story at all. Rather, it's another, and it does have some similarities. For one reason, the context is entirely different. This goes hand in glove with this insistence among a number of Bible teachers that Luke's Sermon on the Plain is the same one as Matthew's Sermon on the Mount because the sermons incorporate some common elements and sayings. However, the setting and sermons themselves are more unlike than like. The agenda behind this claim of Matthew and Mark speaking about the same event about the blind men is because of a scholarly consensus that Mark wrote the first was the first gospel writer. And by the way, there's no hard evidence for this at all. And Matthew was the last. And so they assume that Matthew takes elements from both Mark's and Luke's gospels to fashion his own. So in their estimation, Matthew merely took Mark's story that I just read to you and he abbreviated it and changed it to some degree to suit himself. Now second, the context for Mark's account of what the Pharisees said to Christ about him driving out demons is entirely different than about Matthew's. In Mark the story takes place on a Sabbath, and the Pharisees' bone of contention is that Yeshua should not heal people or exercise demons on Shabbat. Therefore, for Christ to do so makes him wicked. And so, the spiritual authority to dispossess demons can only be Satan and not God. In any case, without further comment, Matthew moves on from this Pharisee's ridiculous accusation towards Yeshua and explains that he spent some time now visiting many towns and villages. Now, since the end of the Sermon on the Mount, we've seen that the focus of Christ's ministry has been on healing and on exercising demons from people. Verse 35 returns us now to His teaching ministry. Or 
the way the Jews would have seen it, Yeshua began operating again more in the role of a wisdom teacher, like Solomon, something that was also attributed to the Sadakim, the holy men. Now, Yeshua's main topic was proclaiming the good news. What good news? The good news of salvation? Nope, not yet. It was the good news of the arrival on earth of the kingdom, shorthand for the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. In Christian terms, we might say that Jesus went on a missionary tour of the Holy Land. But unlike Paul's missionary tours that were evangelical in nature, Christ's mission tour was to alert the Jewish people that a new era had begun. The Kingdom of Heaven had appeared. So we need to think of His tour in the context of Him accomplishing three things. He taught in the synagogues, preached about the arrival of the Kingdom of Heaven, and He healed every manner of infirmity for the common masses of Jews. Yet Yeshua is not only on a good news tour, He's on a fact-finding mission. He wants to know what is the spiritual condition of the people of Israel. The results are disappointing. And what He learned is reported in verse 36. When He saw the crowds, He had compassion on them because they were harried and they were hapless like sheep without a shepherd. It's not difficult, even in our modern world where very few of us have ever been around sheep, to understand the metaphor of a sheep without a shepherd in an abstract sense. However, when this illustration as how Matthew says Yeshua viewed the situation of the Jewish people scattered about the Holy Land, it is best to understand it from its historical sense. We find several references in the Old Testament to sheep without a shepherd. I, I want to share one in particular with you, because I suspect this is most similar to how Jesus felt about His people, and it can apply to modern times as well. In other words, I think we need to just veer off to application here for a few minutes. Okay. Open your Bibles to 2 Chronicles chapter 18. 2 Chronicles chapter 18. Just a few pages back in your Bible, if you have a complete Jewish Bible, it will be on page 1199, 1199, if you have a complete Jewish Bible. We're going to read the first 17 verses of 2 Chronicles chapter 18. Jehoshaphat had wealth and honor and abundance, and by marriage he allied himself with Ahav. And some years, after some years, he went down to Ahav in Shomron, at Samaria. And Ahav slaughtered sheep and oxen in abundance for him and the people with him, and persuaded him to go up with him to remote Gilad. Ahav, Ahav, king of Israel, said to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, Will you go with me to remote Gilead? And he answered to him, I'm with you all the way. Think of my troops as yours. We will join you in this war. But Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, But first we should seek the word of Adonai. So the king of Israel assembled the prophets, 400 men. Should we attack remote Gilead, he asked them, or should I hold off? And they said, Attack! God will hand it over to the king. But Jehoshaphat said, Besides these, isn't there a, a prophet of Adonai here that we can consult? The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Well, yes, there is one man whom we can consult, but I hate him. Because he never prophesies anything good for me, only bad. 
It's Michal, the son of Imlah. And Jehoshaphat replied, the king shouldn't say such a thing. Then the king called an officer and said, quickly, bring Michal, the son of Imlah. Now the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, were each sitting on his throne, addressed, dressed in their royal robes. They were sitting in a threshing floor at the entrance to the gate of Shomron, Samaria. And all the prophets were there prophesying in their presence. Sidkiah, the son of Kenanah, had made himself some horns out of iron and said, This is what Adonai says. With these you will gore Aram until they are destroyed. All the prophets prophesied the same thing. Go up, attack remote Gilead, you will succeed, because Adonai will hand it over to the king. Now the messenger who had gone to call Mikiah said to him, here now, the prophets are unanimously predicting success for the king. Please, let your word be like one of theirs. Say something good. But Mikiel answered, As Adonai lives, whatever my God says is what I'll say. But when he reached the king, the king asked of him, Mikiel, should we go up and attack remote Gilead or should we hold off? And he answered, Go up, you'll succeed, they'll be handed over to you. The king said to him, How many times do I have to warn you to tell me nothing but the truth in the name of Adonai? Then he said, I saw all Israel scattered over the hills like sheep without a shepherd. And Adonai said, These men have no leader. Let everyone go home in peace. The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Didn't I tell you he wouldn't prophesy good things about me, but bad? What a great story. <clears throat> now this story is about two Hebrew kings that lived a long time after King Solomon's death when Israel had, through civil war, become divided into two nations or kingdoms. The kingdom of Israel to the north, the kingdom of Judah to the south. The kingdom of Israel was ruled by Ahav, kingdom of Israel, uh, king, rather of, uh, of uh, Judah was ruled by Ahav, the kingdom of Israel by Jehoshaphat. They had become allies. Israel had wandered off more and more into paganism, while Judah had stayed somewhat closer to the God of Israel in worship and in practice, probably because they still had the temple and the priesthood in their territory. Now Ahab decided, for whatever reason, that he wanted to attack Ramoth Gilead, of course he wanted his ally Jehoshaphat and joining him to do so, and his custom for a king. Ahab calls his prophets to the palace to give their predictions and recommendations for doing such a thing. These prophets were pagans, or at least they worshipped other gods, and Jehoshaphat knew this. He asked Ahab if there weren't any Israelite prophets left in his kingdom that they could consult, and Ahab said, yes, there's one. One. Doesn't like him very much because he never says good things. He never tells him what he wants to hear. All of Ahab's pagan prophets, on the other hand, were very quick to prophesy a good outcome for whatever the king wanted to have happen. But this one prophet, a God worshiper and a true prophet named Michal, had this annoying habit of telling the king what God told him to say instead of going along with the politically correct crowd. So Ahav never wanted to hear from him. Ah, but Jehoshaphat did. The prophet was summoned. He appears before both of the kings. Now interestingly, probably out of self-preservation, this time he just told Ahab what he wanted to hear, that the coalition would easily defeat Ramoth Gilead. But Jehoshaphat smelled a rat. And he told Mikiah, tell the truth. Whereupon he did. Changed his tune. He said the campaign would be a disaster. The result would be that Israel would be so defeated that the remaining soldiers would just wander around the hill country like a bunch of sheep without a shepherd. Further, God says, let, the, let these soldiers just go home in peace because they have no leader to lead them anyway. This elicited the response of a furious and insulted Ahab. See, I told you so. He never says good things to me. 
Now, this is actually pretty humorous. The point is that in God's economy, sheep without a shepherd was a metaphor for having for his people having no legitimate or proper leadership in God's eyes. No leadership. In Christ's day, it had been hundreds of years since there had been a Jewish king over Judah. So the priests were supposed to fill that leadership role as the spiritual leadership, although not the civil government leadership. But the high priest and his family were completely illegitimate. They were not of the biblical line of high priests. Rather, the high priest was run by politically connected aristocrats. Office was bought and sold by to the highest bidder. The temple had become mostly a place of commerce and profit, simply using the guise of religion to fleece the people of their tithes and offerings as the source of the high priest's wealth. The synagogue was also of questionable value, but for different reasons. The Pharisees were the synagogue leadership, that yet they had no biblically ordained position. The entire institution was man-made and doctrinal. The synagogue operated mostly on tradition, or as we find Jesus call it, traditions of the elders. It's not that there weren't well-intentioned leaders and good teachers from time to time that taught the scriptures at the synagogues. However, as we look at the Mishnah, which admittedly was not created for a couple hundred years after Christ, we see that Scripture had for a long time been interpreted through the lens of tradition and custom. And so what was being taught was sculpted and shaped to suit various Pharisee beliefs. Now the result was that slowly, surely, nearly imperceptibly, the Hebrew religion becomes so weak and powerless without the inspiration of the unfiltered biblical truth that Christ viewed His people, the Jews, like a hob sheep without a shepherd, a leaderless flock, who would be better off to just stay home and be at peace. In so many ways, Christians will take what I just said and knowingly shake our heads in sad agreement at what had become of God's people in the Bible. We feel bad over how lost they had become and how terrible their leaders were. But what of us today? What of us? You know, if we're honest, Do not most Christians simply want to hear from their pastors something that affirms what they want to hear? Stuff that agrees with whatever it is they want to believe? If not, they leave. They just search for another church. This is where the term church shopping was coined. But just for this reason. Just as Christ demonstrates over and over, begins with bad leadership that can sink so low that God sees them as no leadership at all. Leadership is biblically likened to being shepherds. The purpose of a shepherd is to care for and guard his flock. A shepherd is to stave off the wolves, even with his own life, for the good of the sheep. Shepherds didn't get rich. Money wasn't the point. The well-being of the sheep was the point. Therefore, it is generally incompatible for a Christian shepherd leader to actively seek both riches from his position of leadership and at the same time devote himself to caring for the members of the congregation. Just incompatible. Such a leader is going to fashion for himself a group of elders that will simply agree with him. Just like those prophets. Just like Ahab did with his group of prophets. One, like Mikiel, that comes forward with godly, 
biblically sourced advice contrary to what the church leader wants to hear probably is not going to last very long. Am I pointing a finger right now only at leadership? For now, yes. But only because that was the point of Christ's comment after touring towns and villages in the Holy Land, and I wanted to make this point in a big way. It was also the point of the story when the godly prophet Micaiah spoke to kings Ahab and Jehoshaphat. Christ regularly expresses contempt for bad or corrupt, corrupt religious leadership. He never concerns himself with civil government leadership. On the other hand, he has compassion for the common people that the leaders are supposed to be properly and selflessly leading. But they don't. Because without godly leadership, the sheep will soon wander aimlessly, even if they don't realize it. So, dear friends, from here forward, I'd like you to think about this whenever you hear in the Bible about sheep and shepherds, and especially sheep without a shepherd. It's a very sad, sad state of affairs in the eyes of our Lord. But it is also one that some unsuspecting leaders are eventually going to have to answer for. Because God puts great responsibility upon those whom He bestows the honor of being a leader of His people. Yet congregation, believers, please, you too have a responsibility. You have a responsibility. Don't choose where you want to attend to be fed and get fellowship according to hearing what you want to hear. Choose the place and the person that you're willing to be led by according to that person's intent to guard the flock and dispense God's scriptural truth even if it does come with some discomfort. No one ever said that the sheep were to have it easy. Well, the final two verses of chapter 9 are profound. They deserve sufficient time to deal with them. So we'll begin our lesson next week with that topic.